Welcome to church, everyone. We're so glad that you are uh, joining us today. Um, we started a series a couple of weeks ago, and it's kind of uh, at this time of the year, it's our Christmas series. But I kind of mentioned how it's a Christmas series, but it's not really about Christmas. And um, it's about something different altogether. And the, uh, the series is called The Silent Night Before Christmas. The Silent Night Before Christmas. And there are two key words in this title that helps you to understand what we're really doing here during this series. Uh, the word before and the word silent. The silent night before Christmas. See, what we're talking about is what happened before Jesus came. Right before Jesus came, right before he was born, what was happening in that time? And how did God prepare Israel for Jesus during that period of time? Now, that period of time, a lot of people don't know about, and I've never preached on it, and I don't think I've ever even taken a class on it, but it's this period of time called the intertestamental period. You guys remember that from a couple weeks ago? The intertestamental period, and it's a period from between the last writings, the last prophets of the Old Testament to Jesus. It's about 400 years, and the reason why we're using the word silent in this series is that the nickname for the intertestamental period is the 400 years of silence. Because during 400 years, there were no new prophets, no new books of the Bible written. There was nothing. And for the Israelite people, they, they didn't know what God was saying. God was not speaking for 400 years, the period of history right before Jesus came, which is crazy, right? Like that's so weird that he would do that. But we discussed and we explored why God did that. And through that time, he was preparing Israel for Jesus. And so the first week we got together and we talked about how that silence was key. That there are times where God leads us into a time where he is silent and we can't hear him because he's not really speaking. But he does that for a reason. And we explored that that first weekend and last weekend. What happens during periods of silence? And, and what we discovered is that for some of you, not all of you, but some of you, you may be at a place in your spiritual journey where you like do not hear God. And you pray and you read the Bible and you look for him and there's nothing. And it's, it's so hard and it's so uncomfortable and you want to get out of that. But for some of you, that's actually exactly where you need to be. And on the other side of that silence, God will come and he will speak and things will be different and things will change. Today we're going to shift gears and talk about a different aspect of the preparation that God led the people of Israel through. And um, I think it's, a, it's kind of an interesting topic, and it's one that I've never really preached on. I've preached on the opposite of this, but for some reason, God wants me to speak about this today. So with that, I want to invite you guys to pray with me as we get into part three of our series. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, so much for this chance to get together. Lord, you know how much I need you. I give this time to you. Holy Spirit, come and do your thing. This is about you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, to begin, I, I need to give you guys a brief history of what happened during the intertestamental period, which I know sounds really boring, right? Some of you are like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, like history. I don't want to learn about history. I just got out of school. I'm on winter break. Why are you going to talk to me about history? But don't worry. Like, this history, number one, I'm going to try to do it real quick. Uh, I'm going to try to talk Pastor Jonathan's speed to get through this part, so I get through it real quick. Uh, number two, it's actually super interesting, right? Let me tell you about 
kind of really quick what happens during the intertestamental period, right? In the intertestamental period, you have, um, you have Israel change ruling nations. So the nation that ruled over Israel changes six different times. So you have six different upheavals, six different regime changes, right? Like six different like kingdoms coming and attacking and overtaking. There's wars and battles, but also there's like shady political moves, right? There's like shady political moves. There's bribing in the story of the intertestamental period. You have this, this emergence of warring factions and groups, people who are on this side and this side, and they don't like each other. They talk bad about each other, and they're fighting for control. So basically, like, it's one giant 400-year-long Korean drama, you know what I'm saying? So if you like Korean dramas, you're going to love Jewish intertestamental period history, right? Awesome, right? So let me give you guys a quick breakdown of what happened. So as I mentioned, the, the regime changes. The ruling nation of Israel changes six times, and this is kind of the process. You start with Persia. So in the very last book of the Old Testament that's in our Bibles, but we know it's not in the Hebrew Bible, right? We all learned that in the first week, which is super interesting. But the last book is in, in our Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And at that time, it's Persia who's in charge. Then after Persia comes the empire of Greece, led by who? Who's the most famous Greek conqueror it was? Alexander the Great, okay? Alexander the Great comes and he conquers everybody as, as, a, as a part of the, the Greek empire. Then he dies and his nation gets split into four different groups. And those four groups start fighting for power. And then the first group to take over the Israelite area of Israel is Egypt. And then after that, Syria comes along. And then we have Israel, which is cool. Israel finally gains its independence, but it's only for 70 years, unfortunately. And then the big bad beast, Rome, comes and takes over. So you have these six different countries change all throughout this 400-year period of history. Yeah, what you have to understand is Alexander the Great, he was Greek, and he loved that he was Greek. And he didn't want to just conquer people and make them part of the Greek empire. He wanted to make them Greek. So he was really, really big on spreading Greek culture. And so there's a couple things that we're going to talk about that, that, that rose up during this intertestamental period that is really, really important because it affected the spiritual condition of Israel. So the first thing was the rise of Hellenization, the rise of Hellenization. So Alexander the Great, he wanted to conquer people, but he also wanted them to be Greek. So he said, okay, from now on, everyone, y'all have to learn Greek. You have to learn the Greek language. You have to learn Greek philosophy. You have to learn Greek religion. And you can do your Jewish stuff. Like, you can keep Sabbath, and we'll let you worship at the temple, and we'll let you do all those things. But you also have to do all this Greek stuff. And, you know, you have your food, but you got to eat some of the Greek food. Trust me, it's, like, really, really good. Don't worry, you're going to like it. And so this is the process of Hellenization. And during this time, you can imagine some of the Jews were like, Oh, I like euros, you know? Like, I like pita bread. This is good, man. I like, I like Greek food. Or, and, and this stuff is kind of cool. And the Greek art is really nice. It's kind of different than our Jewish stuff. And I'm kind of digging it. I kind of appreciate it. And so you have these group of people who are like, maybe we should incorporate it a little bit. Like, it's not too bad. They have some nice stuff. And then you have this other group of people that are like, no. No, 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 no. We are not Greeks. We are Jews, right? And, and, and our, 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 who we are, we are chosen by God, our culture, our nation, everything about us is from the Lord. We cannot compromise. We cannot become Greek. We shouldn't do all, any of this stuff. And so you have these two different groups starting to form. One group of people, the people who like Greek culture, they're called the Hellenizers. And the other group of people, they're called, their nickname at the time were the pious ones. And they were orthodox. And they're like, we don't want any of this Greek stuff. It's all about Jewish stuff, Jewish scriptures, Jewish culture. 
everything. And in the Believer's Bible Commentary, this is what it said about the effect of Hellenism on Israel. It says, Hellenism's emphasis on beauty, shape, and movement encouraged Jews to neglect Jewish religious rites, warping worship to become more external than internal, which had a lasting impact on Judaism. And this makes sense because when Jesus comes on the scene and he's like talking to the Jewish leaders and the teachers, all they're focusing on are the external things. They're not worried about like matters of the heart that much. They're worried about the external and the things that they have to do and those kinds of things. So we're starting to see why they were like that. So that was the first change, the first thing that rose up in Israel that really changed kind of like the, the spiritual condition of Israel. The second was the rise of the synagogue, the rise of the synagogue. Um, if you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, you notice that Jesus teaches often where? In a synagogue. Every Sabbath, this is as his custom, he would go to the synagogue and he would teach and preach and do all those kinds of things. Did you guys ever notice that in the Old Testament, there are no synagogues? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, that's true. There are no synagogues in the Old Testament and there are a bunch of synagogues in the New Testament. Why? What happened? So synagogues started to form in this intertestamental period. And this was actually huge because in the Old Testament, the center of worship was the temple. You go to the temple, and that's where you do the things. You pray toward the temple. You do everything with the temple. And then during this period, after the exile and everyone got spread out and everyone came back, a lot of people didn't come back. And they're like, you know what? I'm good. Like, I kind of like my neighborhood. I kind of like my home here. I don't need to go back to Jerusalem. I don't have to go back to Israel. And so the temple was no longer the center of worship for the Israelites, which was a huge, huge deal. Because you have the temple, and who works at the temple? The priests and the high priests. And they're all in charge, and they're doing these things. And then people are like, let's instead create local areas of worship, kind of like churches. Let's create local areas of worship where we can go there and there can be a rabbi and they're going to teach us stuff. We're going to learn about God and learn the scriptures and all that kind of stuff. So synagogues started popping up everywhere. Isn't it interesting? The synagogue is a Greek word because it came during this time of Hellenization. So it's kind of this, to use a big term, decentralization of Jewish religion. They went from the temple center to a bunch of little local synagogues everywhere. Now, if you're thinking about this, you can imagine how this could be very, very problematic. Because what you're starting to have is you're not only are you having different places where people are worshiping, but you're starting to have different authorities teaching at all those different spots. Whereas before, the authority was with the high priests and the priests. But now it's the priests and high priests, priests versus the rabbis. And so you get all these rabbis at different synagogues teaching, and then the high priests are like, hey, do this. And the rabbis are like, no, we're not going to do that. We're, we're over here. We're going to do our own thing. And you begin to see this tension between the high priests and the teachers of the law, the pious ones, who you would imagine, you can understand, would become the group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees. And so what happens is you have these high priests not in good relationship with the Pharisees and the rabbis and the teachers who are working at the local level. They're like boots on the ground, right? And the high priests are like up in the organization, the bureaucracy. So the people don't really like the priests and the priests don't really like the rabbis. And then what made it worse is that the priests, the high priests, because they were like the leaders of the temple, they began to cozy up with the ruling nations that were conquered Israel. So like 
Greece and, and Persia and Syria would come and they'd be like, hey, high priest, like, let's be friends. And the priest would be like, okay. And so they started to build a relationship and they began to become associated with their oppressors. So then the people, what do you think they're thinking? They're like, oh, priests, you're betraying us. Like, I can't believe that you would do that. And it got so bad. It got so bad. Remember I talked about the bribing and the shady stuff? This is where it happened. It's crazy. The high priest at the time, you guys, if you, if you grew up in the church and read the Bible, you know the high priest has to come from a certain family of Jewish people, the Levites. All priests and high priests have to come from the Levite family. So during the period where the Syrians were in charge, there was a high priest uh, in power, and he was a Levite. These guys who, who, who are cozying up to the, uh, the, the rulers and stuff like that, they wanted their guy to be the high priest. So they go up to the ruling nation, they go up to the emperor, and they bribe him. And they say, hey, hey, emperor, why don't you put one of our guys as the high priest? And what's really funny is his name was Jason. Just Jason, like that's his name, right? So this guy Jason, the, the people came and they bribed the emperor of Syria so that he would take Jason and make him the high priest. He's not a Levite. And so everyone went crazy. All the people were like, what? He can't be a high priest. He's not a Levite. I heard you bribe them, man. Like, that's terrible. And the Pharisees and the people went crazy. So then the Syrian emperor, he went more crazy. And he got even crazier. And he started this huge period of persecution. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Let me tell you about his persecution. Crazy, crazy stuff, right? He made sacrifices illegal. So you made a sacrifice, you're going to die. He made Sabbath observance illegal. If you keep the Sabbath, you're going to die. He made, he made his soldiers, get this, go to towns and pull out their swords and force the Jewish people to eat pork. Like, that's what he did. Like, they would go, it's like, you eat this pork right now. And like, no, it's like, I'm going to kill you then. And they're like, okay, fine, I'll eat it, right? You know? Like, he would do that. And then, and, then, and then what he did, the straw that broke the camel's back. He went to the temple of God, right? The house of God, the temple. And he built an altar to Zeus in the temple of God. And then he took a pig. And then he sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the temple of God. And then people lost their minds. And this is what started what we call the Maccabean Revolt. And that's when everyone started rebelling and fighting back against Syria. And then they fought and won their independence. And that's why Israel became in charge of themselves for 70 years, right? So like crazy, crazy stuff happening, right? Groups and, and factions and backbiting and shady deals and bribing and all that stuff. And all that is to say that the two things that happened to Israel during this time, the two really, really important things that we got to focus on today is that two things were division and corruption in Israel. You see this rise up because of Hellenism, because of disagreements, because of, of, of the shady deals with the emperors and, 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 and the different like, you know, groups. And, and there's this, they were so divided and they're so corrupt. Now, what we have to understand is the reason for all these groups, and there were at the time of Jesus' birth, there was about six different Jewish leaders trying to gain power in Israel, right? You have the Pharisees, which some of you guys know. They're like anti-empire. They're like pro-people, pro-Judaism, pro-Torah, pro-all that stuff. And then you have another group, 
and it's the Hellenizers would eventually become the Sadducees. Remember these guys in the Bible, the Sadducees? These are the guys who are like, we kind of like the Greek stuff. This is kind of nice. Like, I kind of like the things that they're doing. And they're the ones who are cozying up to the empires. Then you have these group called the Zealots, who are like extreme Pharisees, who are essentially like, we hate Rome. We hate all the empires that try to conquer us. We want to destroy them. They're kind of like these domestic terrorist kind of people. Then you have the people called the Sanhedrin, who are people that the ruling nation allowed to run the, the country or run, run the nation. And so they were kind of like teamed up with the ruling nation as well. Then you have this group called the Herod. And all these groups, all these people are saying, I have the answer. Everyone's like, we are in a big, we have a big problem here in Israel. And all these groups are saying, this is the answer. This is the answer. This is the answer. And they're fighting and they're arguing and nothing is working. And so this one commentator says this. He says, the rise of the various parties and movements was evidence of a sincere search for some final solution to Israel's problems. Everything they did seemed to have failed. The stage of history was desperate, and the, situ- uh, the, st- the stage of history was dark, and the situation was desperate. Israel is divided, and Israel's leaders are corrupt. And you would imagine what this did to the faith of the people. Ellen White talks about this in Desires of Ages, page 32. She says, As the Jews had departed from God, faith had grown dim, and hope had well nigh ceased to illuminate the future. The words of the prophets were uncomprehended to the masses of the people. Death was a dread mystery. Beyond was uncertainty and gloom. So because of all these things that happened during the intertestamental period, the division and the corruption, we see that it led to spiritual decline and discontent. Division and corruption led to spiritual decline and discontent. And I think this is really interesting because if you think about it and we take this to a personal level, isn't that what creates spiritual decline in our lives? Division and corruption. And I know those are weird words to describe ourselves at a personal level, but just think about it for a moment. What leads us to spiritual decline? And maybe it's not division. That's not really the right word to say division. For the individual, division is distraction. When you as a person are divided, you are actually distracted, right? You have this thing calling you this way, this thing calling you this way. These priorities, these important things are pulling you in all kinds of directions. You are divided. You are distracted. Isn't that often one of the main sources of why we experience spiritual decline in our lives? I just have so much to do. I just don't have enough time. I'm just too busy. I'm just running around all the time. I just got so much stuff going on that that God moves from where he's supposed to be at the front of my life, and I just keep moving him back down the to-do list. Like division, distraction is one of the main reasons why I think so many of us may experience spiritual decline. And for the individual, corruption is compromise. Now, I'm not saying that y'all are corrupt people. That's not what I'm saying. But, but in a spiritual sense, at a personal level, the reason we experience spiritual decline is either we're distracted for a lot, and a lot of times we're either distracted or we've compromised our faith. 
And we've allowed sin into our lives. We, 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 we allow unconfessed sin, sin that we know we need to walk away from, we need to repent from, but we keep going to it. And we have this un, unresolved sin, un, unconfessed sin in our lives. Like that leads to spiritual decline. So it's crazy when I think what led to Israel's decline is the same thing that leads to our decline. And so the solution is kind of simple. I mean, it's not easy, but it's kind of simple. If you're experiencing spiritual decline because of distraction or division, you know what you got to do. You got to come back. You got to remove distractions and go back to the one thing and no longer try not to be distracted. And if you are corrupted or compromised, you got to repent and say to God, like, no, this is not what I'm going to take a U-turn today and I'm going to move back. I'm going to move back towards you, God. So in Israel, though, you can see that there is this widespread spirit of discontent. Like something is wrong here, guys. Like when we look at our nation, like not just politically, yeah, it's not great politically, but what's worse than that is the spiritual condition of our nation is at an all-time low. Which makes sense why people were so ready for Jesus. Like when you read uh, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, it's really, I always thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, the, the, the Matthew writes about when John the Baptist comes, and he says, this is what he says about John. He says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, which is like super weird, right? Like even for that time, that was not fashion at the time. Like that was weird that he wore those things, right? Camel's hair was itchy and uncomfortable. Nobody was doing that. But John was doing that. And so she, he basically starts by saying, John was super weird. But then look what he says right afterwards. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Like this weird guy, everyone wanted to hear what he had to say. Why? Why? Because first of all, there'd been no prophet for 400 years. He's the first prophet for 400 years to show up. And he's actually talking about the things that actually matter. He's not talking about who the high priest should be. He's not talking about what we should do about the Romans. He's not talking about what we should do about these political issues. He's talking about the actual solution. He was talking about the Messiah. And people were like, I want to know about that. I want to hear about that because I think that's, uh, we're missing that in our spiritual landscape of Jerusalem right now. In Israel, we're missing that. So the people went out in droves to see John. And then when it's described, when Jesus is described in Matthew chapter 7, after he gives his Sermon on the Mount, it says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Right, these verses tell us that there was a general sense of discontent. People were looking at the condition of Israel spiritually and religiously, and there's like something is wrong, something is broken. Our religion, our faith system, our belief system, our leaders are spiritually bankrupt. It's empty, and there's nothing there for me. And I was thinking about, like, why would this happen? Like, why, what, what was God doing in this time? Why would he allow his people to get to this place? But then I began to think about this whole idea of preparation, right? This is judgment, right? And this is punishment, discipline, but this is preparation. And we talked about how, if we, if we take a step back from the story and look at what God is doing here, we talked a couple of weeks about silence, 
that silence in the moment is bad and it's terrible and it's very sad and we feel really upset that we can't hear God and it's a struggle. But at the end of the day, it's good. It's an important thing that needed to happen for Israel and sometimes it's a really important thing that needs to happen for us. And I was thinking maybe this is something similar. Like what was God doing in silence and maybe he's doing the same thing here. Actually, in Jeremiah chapter 29, I don't know if you know this, but God gives instructions to the people about how to act during the exile, right? So, so, so exile, he's like, okay, guys, judgment is coming. Babylon's coming. For 70 years, you're not going to live at home. You're going to live in a foreign land. And then we also know that it's going to extend another 490 years after that. So like for a really long time, you guys are not going to be in a great situation. Let me give you some advice and let me tell you how you should live. And listen to what God says. Now, before that, though, I was thinking about this. This is punishment, right? Like, because of their sin, God is punishing them. This is judgment. And, and I, I recognize this in myself. And, and I, need to, I need to say, this is not a good thing, right? The next thing I'm going to talk about in my life, like, I'm not saying this is good. But I notice that as a parent, you know, part of parenting is punishing, right? Yes. A part of parenting is punishing or disciplining or whatever you want to call it. And I don't think this is right. But here's what I noticed about myself. And I bet some of you guys felt that too. When you punish your child... You don't want to just punish them. You want them to feel punished. Oh, that was weird. All these parents are like, uh. all right, that means you guys understand what I'm talking about, right? Like when you punish someone, or it doesn't even have to be your child, but if you're ever in a situation where you've got to discipline, you don't want to just put them in the timeout, or you don't want to just give them the thing or take away the thing. You want them to feel it. Like you want them to, let's be honest, guys. We want them to feel bad. Because we think if they don't feel bad, they won't change, right? That's what we think. And so, so we want them to feel it in their bones. Like, we want them to feel it in their souls. Like, oh, I am so sorry, Father, for what I have done. Would you please forgive me? Like, we want to see that emotion. We want to see them, like, really, really feel it in the depths of who they are. Now, again, I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's probably a bad thing. There's probably a much better way to do it. But I recognize that I have this temptation and I want that. And when I think about Israel going into exile and this judgment and punishment, I would think God would want the same thing. Listen, guys, I've given you so many chances and you keep worshiping idols. The judgment is going to happen. The exile is going to happen. And you better believe it and you better feel it and you better feel bad. Right? You need, to be, you need to be sad. You need to like cover your head in ashes and cry every day and just like rough it out and like be sad during the whole time. But listen to what God says. His instructions for the exiles in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Your punishment. Pray, for the, pray, the, pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What a weird thing to say when you're punishing someone. Like, I want you to really enjoy this punishment. I want you to have a good time. I want you to like really thrive and flourish in this time of punishment and discipline. Like that's not what I think of when I think of exile and punishment and judgment. And, and I'm thinking like, God, how will they ever learn? Right? Because he's saying, hey guys, I just want you to have a good time. 
I want you to build a life there. I want you to have a good life, a happy life. I want you to have kids and I want you to have grandchildren. I want you to just like enjoy everything that's there. But how will they change then, God? How will they be any different if they actually enjoy the punishment? Like that's the worst thing, right? If you punish your child and then they enjoy the punishment, that's like the worst thing. And like God is telling them to do that. Why would he do that? Why would that be the approach that he wants his children to take when they're in this place? And I thought about it, and I was like praying over it and thinking about it, and I began to think a little bit differently. Because remember, this is punishment, yes, but it's also preparation. And this whole idea is that God is preparing his people for something. And so when we think about the silence of the 400 years, what God was doing is he was removing the feelings, right? And we talked about this last week. Pastor Jonathan shared a message with us. We talked about how God, what God does in these times of silence is he wants to remove the feelings we get from God so that we can enter into a deeper level of faith. And we don't want the feelings from God. We just want God. Remember we talked about that, right? That, that the feelings are not God, and in fact, they can be a distraction or an obstacle to God. So God will be silent. He'll remove the feelings, the felt experiences, the convictions and the joys and the stuff that we had in our faith. He's going to remove those things so that we will begin to search and dig deeper for God, for who God is. And then I was thinking, like, maybe God is doing the same thing here. Maybe God is doing something very similar here. See, what I realize is that what God is doing in this moment is he wants to transition them. He wants to move them to a place of deeper faith as well. See, what I'm realizing is that God is growing Israel from a people who just want what God can give them to a people who just want God. Right? The, the people in this time, it, he, wants them to, he wants them to be happy and content and have a good life. He doesn't want them to be focused on circumstantial change. He doesn't want them to just be like, God, we want to go back to Israel. We want to go back to Israel. We want to go back to Jerusalem. We want to go back to our homes. Because if that's the case, they will only want him for what he can give them. And so he says, guys, I want you to be happy. I want to give you everything that you need. I want you to have all you need to thrive and flourish in this life. Because then, and only then, will you realize that you are still spiritually bankrupt and you need more. Because if, I, if you continue to live in this place with, with, where you feel like you want circumstantial change, then you will always want me because of what I can give you. But I want you to want me for me. And if you think about this, like it's kind of crazy. If you think about when Jesus came, who were the people who really loved Jesus? Think about that. Who were the people who saw Jesus for who he was and who really loved him? It was not the people who were looking for circumstantial change. It was the people who were looking for a change in their hearts. It was not the people who wanted Jesus to do something for them in terms of their circumstances and situations. It wasn't the people who wanted Jesus to come to be an earthly king, to usher into the kingdom a new glory of Israelite history, right? Like, those were the people who, who cheered for him on Monday when he entered into Jerusalem and then yelled, crucify him on Friday. Those people didn't love Jesus. The people who really loved Jesus were the people who longed not for a savior for the land, but a savior for their souls. 
The people who really loved Jesus were the people who, who weren't looking for freedom from Rome. It was people who were looking for freedom from sin. Those were the people who loved Jesus. People who weren't looking to Jesus to change their situation or their circumstances, but looking to Jesus to change and do inner healing and do something in their lives because they knew that something was missing. See, I think God was moving his people to become a people who didn't want him for what he could give them, but to move them to a place of intimacy where they would just want God for who he was. And he had to make sure that they were content and they had what they needed in order for them to get to that place. So this is really, really hard because what this means, and this is going to be very challenging, if you... If you consider yourself a person who has everything you need, right? Like, there are things that you want in life, yeah, and, and there's a, but, but at the end of the day, you're like, you know what? I have everything I need. I, I really do. I'm fine. Like, everything else is extra stuff. It is possible that God is calling you to deeper levels of faith right now in this very moment. He's like, I gave you all that stuff. I provided everything you need so you would realize the real condition of your heart. I gave you everything. I've provided everything for you in this country, in this place, in this city, in your job. I've given you everything you need so that you would realize that I am more than a God who just gives you stuff. And that now that you have everything you need, you can realize the condition and the status of your soul. You know, as I was like thinking about this, we talk about contentment a lot. We talk about contentment in church. We, we preached on contentment. Like contentment is a really, really important thing. But I, I realized something this past week. Contentment is good for your mental health, for being grateful. And like it's a really, really important thing to have. Contentment is good. But I realized contentment is not the goal. The goal for God, the, the, the goal that God has for you is not, I want you to be happy in your life and I want you to be content. What I realized is that contentment is a path. Contentment is a path that when you can achieve and experience a place of contentment where you're no longer looking for things and material wealth and success and all those things, you can begin to realize and begin to understand who God truly is. What I realized is that contentment, what contentment does is contentment helps remove the desire for what God can give us so that he can replace it with the desire for him. So contentment is not just a nice thing to do. It is essential for a deep, intimate relationship with God. If you're never satisfied, if you're always wanting God to give you more, you will never get to the place where you begin to love God for who he is. You could argue, as you look at the people who love Jesus, that the people who look to Jesus for circumstantial change never really loved Jesus. And that's hard. Because for some of you, your relationship with God is defined by you looking for circumstantial change. And you have to ask yourself the question, if that is what my relationship with God is like, if my relationship with God and why I go to church and why I worship is because I want God to do things for me, you have to question, 
do you actually love Jesus? And part of me wants to say to you and to myself, you don't. You love yourself. And that's so hard for me to think about in my own life and it's hard for me to share with you today. Because for so many of us, that's our relationship with God. But I believe that if you have everything you need, he's calling you now today to move into a place where because you understand that you have all you need, you can begin to see the emptiness in your soul and the emptiness in your version of faith and the emptiness in the way you practice your faith. That's what he wanted Israel to experience. They were in, in Rome, and, and, this, this, and it wasn't perfect, right? Like, they still had problems, but they had all they need. If you guys remember seventh grade history, they talked about a period of time called Pax Romana. You guys remember that? Roman peace. It was a time where they brought peace to an area where there was no peace. And it was, like, not natural and, and organic because it was, like, basically, you need to be in peace or we're going to kill you. You know, that was kind of a thing. But there was peace. Israel had what they needed to, to thrive and, and live life. And again, it wasn't perfect, but it was in that moment, in that time of peace and contentment, that they realized their real spiritual condition. And they began to realize that they were spiritually, that even though physically they were content, spiritually they were discontent. That even though physically and materially and status and politically, like things were fine in their hearts, in their faith, they were not. And it was in that moment when Jesus came. So all of that is to say this. If you, I just need you to be honest with yourselves right now. If there is any part of you in your life where you feel a sense of spiritual discontent, like you think about your faith and you're sitting here right now at church and you're like worshiping and that's awesome. I'm so glad that you're here. But there's a part of you is like, something is wrong in my soul. Something is wrong in my relationship with God. I want you to lean into your discontent today. I don't want you to ignore it. I don't want you to accept it. And I don't want you to forgive it. Oh, it's fine. It happens to everyone. Oh, it's because of just this and this and this and this. No, if you feel a sense if you even just a little bit a part of you is like, something is not wrong in, in, in my relationship with God. The way I treat him, the way I think about him, the way I never think about him, the way I think about church, the way I think about the Bible, something is, is, is I don't know what it is, but there's something not right in my faith. I don't want you to ignore it anymore. God needed his people to lean into their spiritual discontent in order for them to experience Jesus when he came. And so two, I want you to lean into your spiritual discontent. Whatever is wrong, whatever is missing, don't ignore it. It's there for a reason. It is a message from God saying, I want more. I want to take you deeper. So don't ignore it. I'm going to do something. I'm coming. Just wait. Just wait for me. I'm coming. And we're, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. Lean into that discontent. Don't be okay with that discontent. If we can be dissatisfied with the condition of our souls because we should be dissatisfied, that prepares us for the coming of Jesus. And I got to mention to you guys, 
If you are in a season of spiritual silence where you're like, where's God? I pray and I read and I try these things and I don't hear God. Or if you're at a place where you're like, man, something is wrong with me spiritually. Something is wrong in my soul. If I really stop and think about it, something's not right here. I want you to understand that this is a pivotal moment in your journey of faith. Okay, and I'm not trying to overemphasize this. I'm not trying to be like hyperbolic here. Like this is a pivotal moment in your faith if that's you. Because the way you respond to God's silence and the way you respond to a sense of spiritual discontent will determine one of two things. The way you respond to it will either lead you to a version of your faith. The way you respond to it it will will either lead you to a place where you will experience Jesus' version of a flourishing, wonderful life. Or it will lead you to what we call cultural Christianity. It's in the moments of silence and discontent and how we respond to it, that is the moment when cultural Christians are born. And I don't think I need to define a cultural Christian. But if that's you, I would, I would imagine that at some point in your life, you had some experience with God, and it was actually really awesome. Or, or you grew up in a home, and the home was faith-centered, and it was meaningful, and you saw value in your faith. And you lived at a time, and, and, and there was something that was great about it. But you hit a wall, right? You hit a wall. And, and it wasn't as great. Like, you didn't feel happy anymore about going to church. And the Bible wasn't like as, 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 as alive to you as it once was. And, and the things that were wonderful about your faith just kind of went away. And in that moment, you didn't know about this thing called the silent night. You didn't know that there are times where God does this on purpose. And you had all the feelings and you had all the joys. But then the silence came. And then the spiritual discontent came. And it was really hard. And you gave up. And, it, and, and the thing is, the experience you had before was too strong and too meaningful for you to leave church. So you stayed in church. But the discontent and the silence was too hard to deal with. So you just gave up. And then you became what we call a cultural Christian. And that's when that was born in you. So that's why it's so important that we understand how we respond to these moments will determine if we move into the version of faith that is flourishing and wonderful and deep and intimate with God and we see God and experience God and we don't use him for what he can give us or what he can make us feel, but we begin to love God for who God is or we move into a place where we just sit in pews and we just go to church because that's what we do. This is the moment where that is determined. So if that's you, I want to just give you that, that, that challenge to lean into discontent. Because the moment that you're okay, that you are content with your discontent, is when you move into the arena of the cultural Christian. When faith becomes meaningless and just becomes a part of your life because that's what you do. If that's where you're at, I want you to lean into the discontent. I want you to investigate it. I want you to dig into it. I want you to ask the question, Why? You know, the, de- the decline is not good, but the discontent, that's from the Lord. The reason you are spiritually discontent is because God wants you to be spiritually discontent. He wants you to recognize it. For Israel, when they understood the condition of their soul, it prepared them for the moment Jesus could arrive. And when he came, everyone was amazed and everything changed. 
And so for you, remain in your spirit, your season of discontent. Constantly think about how you are not where you want to be spiritually. Never be okay with that. Because at some time, at the fullness of time, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, Jesus will show up in your life. And it will be amazing. And you too will be amazed. And you too will experience God for who he is, not simply for what he can do for you. Lean into it and hang on and wait. Because Jesus, Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, that you are a father who prepares us for what you have in store. You are not a God who leaves us to figure things out, but you set us on a path to prepare us for what you want for our lives. And God, what I believe for each person in this room, what you want for us is revival and spiritual revolution. You're not so much concerned with our physical lives, the things that we got to do and the circumstances we're in. And so God, I pray that, Father, if there's anyone who has a sense of spiritual discontent, Lord, that we would lean into that. And that we would never be okay with it. That we would never be satisfied with it. And that we would never excuse it and forgive it, Lord. Help us, God, to investigate. Help us to dig deep and wade and and dive into that discontent. And never let it turn into something that we're just simply okay with. God, because I believe and I have faith and I trust, God, that when we're in that place, you will show up. And you will change everything. Lord, I pray, God, that just like the Israelites, grow us into a people who are not so much about what you can do for us, but we are a people who just want to be with you, who long for you and who love you for who you are. Lord, it's tough, but continue to walk us through it. Guide us. Hold our hands. Take us to that place. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.